Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. Well, as the story goes on, they're getting closer and closer to complete disaster. In the year 640 B.C., a new king is raised up in Judah, an eight-year-old boy named Josiah. As he's growing up at age 16, he has a conversion and commits his life to God. At age 20, he begins to purge Judah and even neighboring Israel of all the pagan altars. He tries to, anyways. He begins the process. He begins repairing the temple in Jerusalem because it's been in disrepair from not being worshipped in. It had been left crumbling for an entire century. He tried to get the people to change their hearts back towards God, but many, many of the people never changed. So in the year 626 B.C., Jeremiah is brought forth by God. This is a year after Josiah begins the purging of the pagan worship. Jeremiah was a very young priest at the time. And he thought he couldn't possibly be used by God for this task because he was too young. We should never, ever think we're too old or too young or too anything. Because if God picks us to do something, he knows what he's talking about. He knows he's picked us for a reason. And he knows he can empower us to do what he's asking of us. Jeremiah, after struggling with being too young and God assuring him, don't worry about it, he prophesies that Judah is going to be destroyed. And with King Josiah, he publicly warns. The two of them get together to warn Judah. Return to God. Return to God. They kept proclaiming that. God was giving the people lots of warnings and lots of opportunity to change. And while Jeremiah and Josiah were doing this and cleaning up the temple, they discovered a scroll that had been neglected for all those years, for a century or more. It was the Book of the Covenant. They had totally forgotten about the covenant that Moses had spent all that time and energy on the mountain receiving and proclaiming to the people. The people of the time didn't even remember who Moses was. His writings were unknown. They knew something of him. You know, yeah, he was this somebody in the past. But his writings were totally unknown to them. Josiah had never seen these writings or heard about them. And when he was reading them, he became very alarmed. So Josiah called together all the elders of Judah and then all the people of Jerusalem... And he had the entire book of the covenant read to the people. He wanted them to become alarmed too, so that change would come about. And King Josiah made the people promise to obey the laws of the covenant. The people said their words, but they didn't take it seriously. So Jeremiah keeps getting more and more visions of Judah's destructions. Meanwhile, the people who don't want to hear this bad news because they don't want to have to change are turning to people who will say what they want them to say. They're producing their false prophets. You know, if somebody tells us something we don't like, do we ever go to somebody else who we know will say what we want to hear? You ever hear about somebody who, say, wanted to get married in the Catholic Church, but they were not active Catholics and they didn't care about the Catholic Church and it was a second marriage and they never had gotten an annulment and so since a priest isn't going to marry them they go and try to find another priest and they keep going from priest to priest until they finally find one who says they'll do it. 
So there were lots of false prophets around now saying, no, don't worry about it. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Things aren't as bad as he says. There's not disaster coming. Around this time, while all this is going on, one of the issues that's a problem, in addition to everything else we've been talking about, one of the thinking processes in people's minds were that if things were going well for them, it's because they were loving God enough. And anybody who had bad things happen to them, it was obvious proof that God didn't love them because they didn't love God. And I'm talking now not so much about the nation, whether things were going well as far as the enemies go. I'm talking about their individual lives. How many kids did they have? How big were their flocks or their harvests? How many wives? Or did their wife stick with them? And did he stick with his wife? Did he have friends? And as long as his individual life was okay, that was proof that he didn't need to change, that there was no need for repentance in any area of his life, because God was with him. And anybody who had any problems in their lives, deaths, they were poor, an earthquake struck and destroyed their property, if something bad happened, that was proof that God was punishing you because you weren't with God. So the book of Job was written to counter that, probably in the 600s before Christ. The book of Job is probably not a true story, it's a parable. The people of the time, if they believed in God at all, tended to think just very legalistically about God. If A equals B, then B equals A. It's very limited thinking, very legalistic. So in this story, Satan tells God that the only reason that Job is a righteous man, a good man, is because it pays to be good. Because if Job is loving God, then God rewards him with this good life. So Satan proposes, let me prove to you that that's Job's attitude. If we take away the good things in his life, he'll turn against you. I'll show you, God, that he doesn't really love you. You stop paying him for being good, and he'll stop being good. But he was wrong. God knew that Job was not really that kind of person. So God says, okay, Satan, I'll take your bet here. I'll show you. Go ahead and do what you want to him, except, except, let's draw some boundaries here. He says, you could take his wealth, you could take the rest of his family, you could take his health. Just don't take his wife. So you can feel safe there, Ralph. (laughs) So Satan does take all these things from Job. And Job gets depressed. And his friends, his so-called friends, come around him. And they go, See, this must prove that you're a bad person. Otherwise, all this bad stuff wouldn't have happened to you. And they even quote Proverbs at him to prove their point. But Job's relationship with God is real. He demands that God come and judge his case and that his friends are not the judge. He says, let God be my judge and you stop telling me my friends, my so-called friends, as to why this problem happened to me. God explains to him that life is unfair. This is why it's happened. It's simply because life is unfair. It has nothing to do with whether Job was getting it as a reward or a punishment. Life's unfair because the evil one, Satan, has corrupted this world. And at this time in history... God cannot get rid of the evil one without killing everyone off who is doing evil. And God's got another plan. What's that other plan? Even in the book of Job, there's a hinting towards Jesus. 
God says in this story, sometimes godly people suffer because the enemy is trying to make them grow bitter towards God. But the moral of the story, when we stick with God anyways, instead of getting bitter with Him, if we stick with God through the sufferings, we get everything back that we've lost and then some. Job got more children. Job got more flocks, more property. Everything that he had lost, he got back in larger numbers. When we lose things from our sufferings, God says, stick with me and you'll get it back and then some. And some of the things are hope, faith, inner peace, trust, patience. Don't we lose patience when things go bad? If we stick with God and do things his way, we end up with a lot more patience than what we had before we suffered. Okay, back into the history story. The Babylon Empire is starting to grow. At this time, Habakkuk becomes a prophet. We have the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. This is right around the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 500s before Christ. Now Habakkuk is getting tired of waiting for God to intervene and help. He complains to God and says, Why do you put up with such evil? And God says, and he's talking about the evil that's going on amongst his own people here, not the enemies. God tells him that Judah is soon to feel the punishment that it's asking for, that it's heading into. He says the Babylonians are coming. And Habakkuk thought, that's solution, God? You know, I want you to change the people of Judah, not bring in an enemy. This is worse. You're going to let the wicked Babylonians triumph over us now. And God says, be patient. In due time, the wicked always get what they deserve. Just don't ask for it in your way, in your time. Habakkuk was awed that God would actually respond to his complaining. One thing we can learn from this for our own lives is when we don't like what it seems like God is doing, it's okay to complain to God. It's not as okay to complain to someone else about God because then we're witnessing to some deceptions. We're passing on some deceptions. But when we complain to God... God says, I understand. And if we open ourselves to hear back from God, he helps us through that so that we regain our patience and peace and everything. Remember the name Nebuchadnezzar? Well, now it's time for him to enter the story. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon. He defeats all the territory surrounding Israel, the northern territory. He defeats Samaria and then Judah. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he loots all of the holy objects from the temple. He takes all the young men from the noble families that are there in Judah in order to train them to serve as Babylon's administrative staffs. See, as Babylon, the empire was growing, the more it conquered, the more its territory needed to be controlled and ruled and guided and overseen. And so his staff needed to keep growing. But it was expanding so fast, he had to take from his enemies the future staff and train them to be loyal to Babylon. Babylon is quite a distance away from Israel. It's present-day Iraq, down near the Persian Gulf. The territory they took over was that whole Middle East section there, all the way over to Israel. It became a large, large empire. The king of Judah at this time is Jehoiakim, and he tries to fight back against Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar retaliates by attacking Jerusalem itself. 
Jerusalem falls on March 16th, 597 B.C. 10,000 people were deported. The false prophets, who are still trying there desperately to keep the people from turning to God, are saying, don't worry about it. Babylon's going to be defeated in two years and everything will get back to normal. The prophet Jeremiah sends a letter to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. And he says, don't listen to these false prophets. Settle in. Get used to living in Babylon. Pray for the prosperity of Babylon because this is your home now. And you're going to be there for the next 70 years. A whole generation. He mentioned the time limit of 70 years because he wanted to encourage the people to know that it is a limited time. It's a lot more than two years, but it, there is a limit. God will restore Judah. In Jeremiah chapter 29, it's referring to this. It's trying to give the people courage in their exile. Chapter 29, verse 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, only after 70 years have elapsed for Babylon will I visit you and fulfill for you my promise to bring you back to this place, meaning Judah. For I know well the plans I have in mind for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for woe, plans to give you a future full of hope. That's one of my favorite scriptures. Sometimes I have written out a little index card plastered right in front of my desk where whenever I'm going through a rough time, I can look at. Or whenever I'm uncertain about the future, I look at that. I know the plans I have for you, God says. You can trust in me. These are plans for good, not disaster. Babylon makes another attack, a final attack that totally destroys the temple in Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar's army burns the temple and every important building in Jerusalem. They take everything of value. They take all the people except the poorest of the poor. And they leave those people behind in Judah to keep the land alive, to keep the land productive. Because if the land is producing crops and livestock, then King Nebuchadnezzar can tax it and keep his empire going with the tax money. While this is going on, while the people are Babylonian captives, the book of Lamentations was written. The book of Lamentations begins with Jerusalem weeping like a destitute queen. And the book of Lamentations ends with a mixture of confidence, questioning, and humility. That humility is key to what God is looking for so that the people are willing to turn back to him. In the book of Lamentations, it shows that the people are now beginning to realize that only God can bring such a stubborn people to true repentance. Remember how the prophets have tried, some of the kings have tried, and they failed. During the 70 years in exile in Babylon, the couple of generations that were born in Babylonia, or wherever in Babylon territory they were transplanted to, these few generations did more in their humble circumstances, their defeated circumstances, their sufferings. They did more to transform the faith of the people than all of the generations that had taken place between Joshua when they entered the promised land up until now. And because, at first, because they were turning back to God, they figured, okay, now God's going to shorten our exile. It won't be 70 years after all. There's still a little bit of bribing God here going on. You know, God, if I'm good, you're going to do things my way, right? Do we ever think in terms of that? 
the book of Ezekiel. Right after Jeremiah comes Lamentations, and after Lamentations comes Baruch, and then Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of those exiles living in Babylon, and he was being trained as a priest. And he was given the mission by God to tell the exiles that each person was individually accountable for their actions. And the reason why he had to tell them this was because the people in exile were saying, it's my parents' fault. We wouldn't be living here if they had turned to God when they were given all those warnings. And God needs to keep these people humble. So he sends Ezekiel to them saying, you are accountable for your life. You are still living in exile because your heart is still not right with God. Ezekiel had a vision of Jerusalem. He saw the glory of God rise from the temple in Jerusalem and depart from there and stop over a nearby hill called the Mount of Olives. The very place where one day Jesus was going to take all of mankind's sins and put it to death. In the parable of the shepherds in chapter 34, God tells Ezekiel that he's going to take his sheep from the false shepherds and give them a true shepherd, a son of David. Look at verse 23. I will appoint one shepherd over them to pasture them, my servant David. He shall pasture them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, he's not talking about the reincarnation of David, or David coming back from the dead. He's talking, of course, about Jesus. In verse 17, look at what he says here. As for you, my sheep, says the Lord God, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Does that sound familiar? Leap forward in time to Matthew 25, starting with verse 32. And all the nations will be assembled before him. This is Jesus here speaking now. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, etc., etc. 4, verse 33, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. See the connection? After news came to the exiles that Jerusalem had been totally destroyed, of course, Jerusalem represented that God was alive. And when Jerusalem was dead, they felt devastated. So God has to speak to them to encourage them. And he gives them, through Ezekiel, information about the wonderful future he's got planned. He's going to unite Judah and Israel under one Davidic king, king from David's line. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit and empower them through that Holy Spirit to remain faithful. This is in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Look at verse 26 through 28. I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. I will put my spirit within you and make you live by my statutes, careful to observe my decrees. It's the foretelling of the Pentecost Sunday in which the Holy Spirit descended upon everyone. Before the Holy Spirit was available to the prophets, the servants who were closest to God, now God is saying, the reason why you all kept failing to follow me and walked right into disaster was because 
you didn't have me in your hearts. My spirit does not dwell within you. Well, I'm going to do something someday that places my spirit within you so thoroughly that it's going to be a lot easier for you to obey me. That spirit will empower you to obey me. As difficult as living the Sermon on the Mount, as difficult as living the commandments, the things that Jesus tells us to do, as difficult as it is to be like Jesus, it isn't so difficult when we rely on the Holy Spirit within us. Because everything's possible to Him. Nothing is impossible. And for us it is, for Him it is not. At the end of Ezekiel's book, God gives him a vision of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. In this vision, God tells us that a blood sacrifice is going to be needed to cleanse the people so that they can live close to holy God. And who was that blood sacrifice? Right. Then Ezekiel saw the glory of God go back into the temple. Remember how in an earlier chapter he saw in a vision the glory of God leaving the temple and going to the Mount of Olives? Now he sees this glory of God going back into the temple. And he sees from this temple a river flowing out of the temple, giving life to everything and everyone that it touches. This represents the Holy Spirit flowing from the temple of God, flowing as a result of that blood sacrifice. The Holy Spirit is becoming a bigger and bigger figure in the prophecies. Now, when King Nebuchadnezzar rounded up those young noblemen to train them to be administrative assistants in his empire, one of those lads was Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel. And he had three friends named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were renamed by the Babylonians to show that now they belong to Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four were very special people. Their faith and relationship with Yahweh was strong enough that they would not be swayed by Babylonian beliefs. They held true to the true faith. They held fast to it. Privately, so as not to make a big scene, they refused to eat the king's food. They wanted to stick with their kosher foods. The food that the king was offering them, the king's food, had been sacrificed as part of the rituals to pagan gods before they were served. And these four young men did not want to have anything to do with pagan worship. And as a reward for doing this, God gave them better health than all the other trainees who were eating the king's food. But they were keeping their faith secret because they didn't want to face persecution. And the day came when they had to go public with their beliefs. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded that all of his officials bow down to a golden statue of himself. See, he was God. And he wanted all of his officials, including the trainees, including Daniel and his three friends, to bow down to the statue. And they had to make a decision. Am I going to bow down to the statue or am I going to make it publicly known who it is I really love and worship? And they chose to show the truth about who it is they loved and worshipped. Somehow or other, Daniel managed to get away with it. He wasn't really seen. He wasn't caught. But the other three were caught, refusing to bow down to the statue. So they were thrown into the fiery furnace for it. The furnace was made so hot that some of the men, the Babylonian men, who were stoking the fire, throwing the wood on, they got burnt to death just by being near it. The point is, because of what happens to those three guys in the furnace, God's making the point here, 
that this was not just some little light, you know, little campfire going on in the furnace, you know. They weren't just dancing around a campfire. This was a hot oven. And there was an angel, remember? An angel described as one like the Son of God who was seen in their company in the furnace. Did they think, did they realize ahead of time they weren't going to be burnt by it? No. They thought they were sacrificing their lives. But the angel comforts them. The angel's there to tell them, God is with you. And God is protecting you through my presence. And you will not be harmed. So when we face persecution because we stand up for God, we get special divine help. We get the comfort of angels. We get the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've asked the question myself and heard many people ask, the Christians who were martyred, you know, so many were martyred cruelly in the beginning of the Christian church, and today there are still many being martyred. I think it's something like 6,000 a day Christians are being killed for their faith. And the question is, how can they do it? I don't want to ever be martyred because I think I would run away from it and would deny God in order to save my life. I don't want to have to face it. Even if I don't deny God, I still don't want that kind of suffering. I don't want to die a martyr. And I've done a lot of thinking and praying about this. And what I believe God has shown me is that when we are called to enter our fiery furnaces, God puts in our heart a joy to do it, a comfort to do it, supernaturally, that we don't have right now. While we don't need it, we don't have it. But if the day comes and any of us in here are going to be martyred for our faith or are going to have to face some, whatever the persecution is, maybe you've got a child in school being picked on for his faith. And there's going to be persecution when you go and speak to the principal about it or something, or the teacher about it. Whether it's that kind of persecution or life-threatening persecution or anything in between, God will give us, if we choose to, He doesn't give it to us before we make the decision. But once we say, okay, yes, Lord, I will trust in you, and then we take that step forward into the persecution, we get a comfort and a joy and a peace that's supernatural to help us through it. Well, Daniel got away. He didn't have to go through this. So God said, we've got to prove Daniel here too. You know, he got away from this one. We were going to have to try again here. So King Nebuchadnezzar made another law, another official decree, that for a month no one could worship anyone but him. Now see, he had jealous officials that were putting him up to this. Officials who did not like Daniel and his friends because of their beliefs. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't all that bad. He was just swayed by his bad officials. Because these jealous officials knew that Daniel was going to disobey this law. They made sure that they had plenty of time in that month's time frame to get Daniel to be caught refusing to obey this decree of worshipping Nebuchadnezzar. So they make sure he gets caught. And the king is upset because by now Daniel has become a favored servant of his. And the king is upset that this was all a trick to capture Daniel. But the decree had said that anybody who did not worship the king was going to have to be thrown to the lions. The king didn't want to have to throw Daniel to the lions. But he said to Daniel, look, if your God is who you say he is, maybe he'll protect you from this. And of course we know that God did. He kept the mouths of the lions shut. King Nebuchadnezzar was actually being used by God as an instrument of God. Part of this whole thing of King Nebuchadnezzar witnessing 
the three teenagers not being burnt up in the furnace and Daniel not being eaten by the lions. Part of this was for Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. And although he never became a Jew, he did begin to experience that God was real and began to believe in that. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he does not understand. And the dream came when he was feeling very insecure about how long this wonderful empire he'd been building up would last. You ever achieve something you've been working for and it's good and you're wondering if it's going to end soon? Or will this last for the rest of your life like you had always hoped it would? King Nebuchadnezzar was getting insecure about this. So God gives him a dream. And Daniel has the gift of interpreting dreams. So Daniel is called forth to interpret it. The dream is a vision of a huge statue of a man representing different kingdoms. The head was made of gold and that represented King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. After that would come silver, bronze, and then iron kingdoms in that order. It's an ever-decreasing strength of metal. It's an ever-declining glory of the kingdoms that's being shown. And the feet are made of iron and clay, which indicates a mixture of strength and fragility. Strength and the ability to be broken. And finally, the eternal kingdom founded by God comes along in this vision and smashes the statue and replaces all the kingdom. When we get back, I'll go through how this vision came true. And then we'll finish the Old Testament. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.